Well, this morning we begin our much-anticipated study in the book of Revelation. Now, the, the fever pitch of interest in Revelation and the end times caused by the Left Behind series has waned a bit, but Revelation still intrigues us. You know, visions of dragons and beasts and riders on celestial horses certainly capture our imagination. But the varying schools of interpretation of Revelation, proponents of each declaring they are right and everyone else is wrong, leave us confused and almost afraid to read it for ourselves. And that's a shame because Revelation is an amazing book. It's the finale of the Bible. And while Revelation doesn't actually reveal anything that isn't contained in the previous 65 books of the Bible, at least according to the school of interpretation to which I subscribe, and the right one, of course, it does ignite our imagination and give us an exciting look at the hope we have in Christ. If you want encouragement in trying times, you can find it in the Revelation. If you need the assurance of victory in the face of overwhelming odds, you can find it in the Revelation. If you want just a fresh glimpse of heaven, you can find it in the Revelation. So how do we begin? We begin with the book itself. Surely if God intended the revelation to be understood, he would have given us the basics we need to understand it. And this he's done in the first eight verses of chapter one. Now, I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but we're not going to be looking for hidden esoteric keys that will unlock the mystery of Revelation. We're simply going to look at the book the way you would any other. We're going to look at the introduction, the address, and the theme of Revelation. They can all be found in the first eight verses, and they really do give us the key to understanding the book. A book that really isn't all that hard to understand if we just let it speak to us. We begin with the introduction, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, those very first words in the Revelation clear up a lot of misunderstanding about the book. To begin with, the book is a revelation or an apocalypse. The Greek word apocalypsis is made up of two words, apo meaning away from 
And calypsis meaning hiding or veiling. So an apocalypse, a revelation, is an unveiling. It's something that takes away the veil and makes things clear. Not something created to bewilder us or to confuse us. It's something written to open our eyes to see truth. That's what a revelation is intended to do. And we do note that this is not the revelation of St. John the Divine, as entitled in the King James Version, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. It didn't originate in John's mind. It's not the delusions of a senile old man isolated on a desert island, as some have suggested. It originated in the mind of God and was given to Christ to show to his bondservants. It's the unveiling of truth that God wanted made known to those who serve his son. An unveiling that took place nearly 2,000 years ago, around 95 A.D., and pertained to things that were to shortly take place. Now, that means most of what was revealed has long ago been fulfilled. And we therefore should not read Revelation as if it were tomorrow's newspaper. We shouldn't read it expecting to find out what's going to happen in Iraq and Egypt and Israel tomorrow. Instead, we should recognize that from our perspective, much of Revelation is already history. Now, that doesn't mean that's of little value to us today. It doesn't demean its value at all. Because through it, we have the assurance that God will act in the face of adversity and that he will never leave his people without hope. It's a message for every age, but it's grounded in history. The next thing we note that's important to our understanding of Revelation is that this unveiling was communicated to John by an angel. And the important thing is not that an angel served as the channel of communication, but the way it was communicated. The word actually means to signify or to make something known through signs and symbols. And that gives us a very important key. In under, interpreting and understanding Revelation. While most of the Bible should be taken literally, unless it's obvious from the construction that a figure of speech is being used, the bulk of Revelation should be taken figuratively. Because it was given to us symbolically. When we see Jesus portrayed as a lamb or a lion, we shouldn't assume that Jesus really did take on the form of a lamb or a lion. These are merely symbols representing characteristics of our Lord. They shouldn't be taken literally. Neither should they be pressed beyond their obvious intent. And that's important. While there is admittedly room for various interpretations of the symbols used in Revelation, most disagreements could be resolved if interpreters would resist the temptation to try to find meaning in every detail of the symbols used. 
Books upon books have been written trying to interpret every little detail of the visions. I think that's a mistake. If you look for too much information in the details, you miss the message. The same way you can lose the thrust of our Lord's parables by dissecting his every word. You can lose the message of revelation by pressing the details. Now, I want to give you an example of what I mean by pressing the details too far. An example of spiritualizing or seeking deep spiritual meaning in every detail. This was done long, long ago in the details concerning the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm sure you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, listen to how an interpreter 1,700 years ago interpreted it. The man who is on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho represents Adam, the head of the human race. He left the heavenly city and is traveling down to the city of earth, the profane city. But having turned his desires toward the earth, he falls into the hands of robbers. That is, he is overpowered by Satan and his evil angels. These robbers strip him of his garment of original righteousness. They also beat him, leaving him full of, of wounds, half dead. Yes, half dead in sins and trespasses. The priests and the, the Levite represent the law and the sacrifices. They cannot save the sinner. They're powerless to help. But the good Samaritan, namely Jesus Christ, is traveling that way and helps the poor sinner. This good Samaritan dresses his wounds with the oil of the Holy Spirit and wine, namely the blood of his passion. He then puts the poor man on his own mule, that is, on the merits of his own righteousness. He takes the poor man to an inn, that is, the church. The next day, the good Samaritan gives the host two shillings, that is, the word and the sacraments, in order that he may provide for the spiritual needs of the poor sinner. Then the good Samaritan departs, but promises to return later. Okay, what was the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Was Jesus using this parable to teach the scheme of redemption? No, not at all. Jesus told the parable to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And he ended it with a statement, go and do likewise. By searching for deep Spiritual truth in every element of the parable, the interpreter missed the point of the parable. Now, the details are important because they set the stage for the parable. They're like props in a play, but they do not contain the message of the play. The same is true of the symbols in Revelation. If you try to interpret every aspect of the symbols, looking for deep spiritual messages in every detail, you'll most likely end up missing the play, missing the message. You know, the idea of a play, a picture show, I think is also very apropos for Revelation because we are told what John actually saw. He is bearing witness to the visions to moving pictures that the angel showed him. So for the most part, I think we ought to simply sit back and look at the visions 
with John. Instead of trying to interpret every detail of the pictures of Christ, let's just get a feeling of His glory and His majesty and His victory. Instead of analyzing every detail of the beasts and the monsters, let's see awesome manifestations of evil that cause great harm, but ultimately go down in defeat. If we'll do that, we can be truly blessed by the message of Revelation. In fact, that's what John promised to the readers and the listeners of this letter. And don't miss the fact that Revelation was intended to be read publicly in the churches. It wasn't intended to be dissected in the theologian's laboratory. It was to be listened to and to be heeded because the time was near. And yes, it was a prophecy. But don't let that word throw you. I really like what Eugene Peterson has to say about prophecy. A common way to misunderstand prophecy, and especially the prophecy of the Revelation, is to suppose that it means prediction. But that is not the biblical use of the word. Prophets are not fortune tellers. The prophet is the person who declares, thus says the Lord. He speaks what God is speaking. He brings God's word into the present, insisting that it be heard here and now. The prophet says that God is speaking now, not yesterday. God is speaking now, not tomorrow. It's not a past word that can be analyzed and then walked away from. It's not a future word that can be fantasized into escapist diversion. It's a personal address now, for the time is near. If we make the prophetic word a predictive word, we are procrastinating, putting distance between ourselves and the application of the word, putting off dealing with it until some future date. There are predictive elements in some prophecy and some in Revelation. But they're always in service to the present message. In the Revelation, we are immersed, not in prediction, but eschatology. An awareness that the future is breaking in upon us. And don't let the word eschatology throw you either. It simply means a study of last things. So what we have by way of introduction to the book of Revelation, is simply an understanding that it is an unveiling of things that were about to take place 2,000 years ago. It was revealed through signs and symbols and was intended to bless those who read, hear, and heed its message. So to whom was this revelation addressed? Let's read on, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, 
to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, something that is often overlooked by those reading Revelation is quite simply that it is a letter. It was written by John and addressed to the seven churches that were in Asia. Now, John has already identified himself as a bond slave of Jesus who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I think we're safe to assume that bond slave witness was the apostle John. Tradition holds that the apostle John spent the last years of the first century ministering with the church in Ephesus. So he would have been well enough known to the churches in that area to write them a letter and simply sign it John. Now, when we get into the second and third chapters, we're going to meet these seven churches. And we're going to hear the messages that John relayed to each of them. In fact, we're going to introduce each of the specific messages with a short video that will present the actual historical, geographical, and cultural settings for each of the churches. And we're going to do so because it's important that we ground Revelation in reality. And because Revelation, like every other book of the Bible, must be studied in its historical context. But for now, we simply need to note that these churches were part of the Roman province of Asia Minor, the western portion of modern Turkey, and that they were under the threat of persecution, if not actually facing it during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Historians are not certain as to the extent of the persecution under Domitian, but it's a well-known fact that he had taken Caesar worship to its extreme. He had statues of himself erected in various cities throughout the empire and required that everyone worship his image and declare Caesar is Lord. Obviously, faithful Christians couldn't do that. And since they wouldn't, they were at the very least discriminated against by those charged with enforcing emperor worship. And if they weren't actually being imprisoned, exiled, or killed for the refusal to make Domitian their god, they knew the threat was real. They had seen it happen under Nero some 30 years earlier. Some were therefore being tempted to give up their commitment to the sole lordship of Christ in their lives. And it was to these people that John wrote, reminding them of the grace and peace that comes from the Almighty God. And grace is more than the undeserved forgiveness of sin. Grace also has to do with the continued presence of Christ in our lives and the strength that he gives us to do that which is right. And so when we live by the power of God's grace, That we have peace, a peace that passes understanding and transcends immediate circumstances. That's the kind of peace John was holding out to the recipients of this letter. And he reminds them that this peace comes from him who is, who was, and who is to come again. From the everlasting God and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, as we'll discover, seven 
is John's favorite number. And it doesn't take long to figure out that seven has symbolic significance. Actually, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. And John, no doubt, intended for this letter to circulate among all the churches that were facing the threat of persecution. But he was told to address this letter to only seven of them. For the same reason, the Lamb of God will be pictured with seven horns and seven eyes. There will be seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath. See, seven is a number that stands for completion, wholeness, perfection. And the seven spirits who are before the throne of God is a symbolic picture of the Holy Spirit. So this letter is from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And John goes into detail, reminding his hearers of who the Son is, who Christ is, and what he has done. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And the word for witness is the word from which we get the word martyr. Jesus was faithful in his witness even to death. And he became the firstborn of the dead. He arose from the grave and brought with him the promise that many more would be born from the dead. That death is not the end for Christ's faithful witnesses. Now, that reminder would certainly be encouraging to those who are putting their lives on the line to remain true to Christ in the face of the emperor's threats. And then John reminds them that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is over the emperor. So it would be foolish to give up allegiance to Christ to worship someone who is accountable to him and who will be judged by him. Besides, Jesus is the one who loves us, who has redeemed us from our sins by his blood. He's the one who has brought us into the kingdom of God, who has made us priests and given us free access to the very throne of God. He's the one to be given glory. He's the one who will have dominion forever and ever. The emperor pales in insignificance besides him. So there's no need to worry about him. Just keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of Revelation, verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That is the promise of Scripture, and that is certainly the promise of Revelation. But to say that the theme of Revelation is the second coming of Christ is to foster a misconception. Revelation wasn't written to convince us that Jesus is coming again or to reveal to us when he is coming. It was written to encourage us to be faithful to Christ no matter what. 
That is the theme of Revelation. Victory is secure for those who remain faithful to Christ. Now, obviously, the second coming is a key motivator in our faithfulness. So we will play a prominent part in Revelation. We will be reminded of it often. But the theme is broader than the second coming itself. It has to do with the lives we live while anticipating the return of our Lord. It has to do with the struggles we face and the struggles that have gone on in spiritual realms to guarantee our victory. It has to do with the Lordship of Christ over everything and everyone, even those who pierced him, even his enemies, those who thought they had destroyed him, will see him when he comes in power and glory. In fact, men from every tribe on earth will mourn because they rejected the Almighty God, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That is the theme of Revelation. It's a message of victory for those who are in Christ and remain faithful to Him. And it's a message of utter defeat for those who abandon Him or oppose Him. So it's a message for everyone. And it can be good news or bad news. But it's not new news. For as Eugene Peterson wrote in Reverse Thunder, I do not read the revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the Gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on this subject. But there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information but to revive my imagination. May God use our study in Revelation to revive our imagination and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Revive us again. Let's stand.